our next guest is a he's a political analyst and a journalist for currently for Sputnik News Agency, and his name is Andrew Karibko, and he's also a member. Uh, he's an expert member on the Council Institute of Strategic Research and Predictions in Moscow. Uh, he's also got a master's degree in international affairs from Moscow State Institute of International Relations. And uh, he's currently working on a Ph.D., uh, very well qualified to talk about the subject, which we're going to talk about. So I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining us this week. Andrew, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Patrick. I appreciate it. No, it's our pleasure, Andrew. You know, I've been, uh, I've, I've seen your work. Um, I've, I've, I've always recognized your articles and some of your commentary is, uh, is, is, very credible and very on point and the reason i'm bringing you on because in my opinion andrew i believe that there's an issue that's facing uh it's facing europe it's facing the world it's facing the people of uh of eurasia of russia as well uh i believe there's a crisis that is being engineered here and i think we're going to have to break down some of the aspects of this to really understand it this is the migrant crisis and unless you've been living on mars for the last six months uh you will know exactly what this is and the ramifications of it i believe are far uh far reaching socially uh economically geopolitically uh more than any single issue this seems to be this this byproduct if you will of of a lot of the wars and uh, geopolitical moves in Eurasia and the Middle East. Uh, I believe that this is very pivotal. This could potentially shape the destiny of Europe and the region over the next 50 to 100 years. And I, I really want to get into detail about it. Now, just just bl- briefly give us a brief introduction of, of your background, Andrew, and uh, and then let's talk about this issue give a basic definition of what we're looking at here and let's let's get into trying to understand the shape of this migrant crisis okay so as a just a very brief background i'm originally from cleveland ohio graduated from the ohio state university in 2010 and i moved abroad in 2012 to poland and i've been in russia since 2013 and everything else that you mentioned patrick kind of you know satisfies my career uh, biography thus far now in terms of uh an introduction to what's going on here. I'd like to point all of our listeners to a groundbreaking work from 2010 by a woman called Kelly M. Greenhill. She wrote a book about weapons of mass migration, and a summarized version of her book was presented as an article calling sources and information actually from the book that's available at the Naval Postgraduate Institute's website. Now, I have a link to that uh, source for my latest column for Sputnik, that's available on the website, SputnikNews.com. So everyone can check that out and actually see what I'm about to reference. Well, in short, what Ms. Greenhill said is she said, actually she proved that there have been over 56 separate instances of governments either provoking, generating, or exploiting large-scale human migrations. Now, never as, as large as what we see right now since World War II for different geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, ends. Now, how that relates to what's happening now is, as you mentioned in your intro, Patrick, this is something that has been strategically engineered, and it is most certainly a byproduct, first and foremost, of the U.S.'s unipolar hegemonic wars on the Middle East and North Africa. As we all are witness to, the amount of destruction 
that has resulted as from these wars has created the on-the-ground circumstances and conditions to actually provoke this large-scale human migration. But what we need to keep in mind now is most of the people that have been um, uh, displaced by the war on Syria, they're still in Syria. They're internally displaced people. A lot of the other ones that left, they left for a neighboring state, not even counting Turkey. I'm talking specifically about Lebanon, Iraq, and Jordan. Those that went to Turkey went there for a couple reasons. Some of them, obviously, humanitarian. If they're real refugees, they got to get out. They're close to the border. They chose to go there for whatever reason. But a lot of the people that had streamed into Turkey are Islamist sympathizers. And I want to qualify myself here real quick and clarify for the listeners that by Islamist, I don't mean Muslim. I mean people that are Muslim that want to enforce their views on others. This can be a regular sympathizer, a card-carrying member of the Muslim Brotherhood, so to speak, or a member of Daesh, also known as ISIL. Sometimes they just cycle through. It's basically like one big merry-go-round. You jump on it, and you're on the jihad merry-go-round, okay? So what had happened with some of these individuals, they had decided to leave Syria, be it because they're losing, which is what's happening right now. The latest so-called refugee wave into Turkey is of Islamists and their families, some of which are not even Syrian. Most of them are not in this latest wave. They're from places as far away as Uzbekistan and Xinjiang and Western China. To get back to the core of the matter, what had happened is Turkey was collecting these refugees, and they were keeping them there for a couple years. They were training some of them to send back in as fighters, as insurgents, terrorists, quote-unquote rebels, what have you. Well, because it hasn't been working to uh, to uh, promote regime change, these forces have been on the downswing lately. Well, Turkey decided it wanted to unleash the floodgates, so to speak. It allows the refugees that were in Turkey or previously not allowed to leave their camps, work, or do anything, basically free reign to go to Europe wherever they want to go. Now, the U.S. obviously has an interest in this. U.S. obviously guides and kind of supervises this process along. And one of the things I'd like to get to in this discussion with you, Patrick, is how this all relates to Germany and the U.S.'s geopolitical designs in disrupting Europe and keeping it in a state of permanent sociopolitical tension so that color revolutions can be provoked on demand in order to pressure non-compliant governments, by this I mean governments that are cooperating pragmatically with Russia and China, into rescinding their decisions, or they see what will happen, they'll just be toppled. Okay, well, I just want to underline your first point. I think it's you made a, you came out of the gates with something very important that you talked about. There are documented uh, instances historically that this this can be proven this is not uh, conspiracy theory where uh, governments uh, or transnational organizations have used uh, weaponized migration used it as a kind of a weapon uh, a social weapon as it were a geopolitical weapon and also i'm going to give you a little support on that point uh the the cloward piven strategy which was a political strategy outlined in 1966 by American social uh, socialists and political activists Richard Cloward, uh, Cloward and Francis Fox Piven. And they called for overloading the U.S. public welfare system in order to precipitate a crisis that would lead to the replacement of the welfare system with some new sort of a national uh, nationalized system. So uh, this is... Uh, part of American history as well. And I can say that I saw a kind of a dry run of the migrant crisis here in the United States uh, back in uh, summer of 2014, a couple of years ago. And th- there was all of a sudden this sudden influx of 
Guatemalan, Honduran, and El Salvadorian refugees flooding over the uh, southern border of Texas uh, and, and then held and then released and causing this huge political uproar about uh, Central American migrants uh, in coming in and being released into communities undocumented and so forth. And I, I immediately thought, where did they come from? How did this happen? Did it, did it just happen like a snap of the finger and all of a sudden there was a 100,000 people that weren't there yesterday that arrived, but this was kind of happened over the course of about 18 months. And then the media capitalized on it. And it was kind of a, a small version of the European migrant crisis that you're seeing today. The, the European ones got much more uh bigger ramifications and bigger themes uh, in terms of geopolitics than the, than the U.S. one did in the summer of 2014. But um, it, it, I believe that it is very easy to engineer these types of events, especially when the pe- where the people are coming from are coming from such an economically depressed or a country that's run by drug cartels or a country that's run by terrorist cartels as as Syria as large parts of Syria are in and Turkey right now. So um so what you're saying Andrew is absolutely factual. Um this isn't a conspiracy theory. Uh this is very much looks like and by history is our guide who's probably uh, most certainly an engineered crisis. Yeah, and something I'd like to kind of expand on that you mentioned was a uh, kind of testing how some of these methods were tested inside the United States and it might shock some of our listeners, but some of them may also have kind of figured this out on their own and maybe have been a little bit too afraid to actually vocalize their fears. But sometimes the United States itself is being used as a sociopolitical laboratory for some cutting-edge, uh, on-the-verge type of civilizations. I can give you just one quick example before I get back to the topic specifically of migration is we see these so-called rental mobs in the United States, regardless of what caused their protesting, rioting for whatever, regardless of how justified or unjustified it may be. We see that the Soros Foundation has had a hand, and specifically in Black Lives Matter and some of those related protests, in organizing them, provoking them, and kind of keeping them going. And we kind of see that this is a laboratory, even though it's using one's own citizens, of relatively controllable variables. I mean, the United States has a lot of control, obviously, what goes on internally. And what I... uh what I have been kind of coming to the conclusion of is that Americans themselves are being used as some of the guinea pigs before these methods are being deployed elsewhere, as you had mentioned, you know, with the Guatemalan case, Central American case in Europe. Now, going back to that European case, I also want to mention that, you know, for some of our listeners, they may be thinking, what are they talking about? How can every refugee and person coming to be part of a destabilization? Doesn't make sense. Well, this is the thing. Just by the very existence of a large-scale, uncontrollable modern flow, no matter what the intent of the human being is, the individual human being that's taking that journey is, be it to be a, a welfare piggybacker, an actual refugee, or a terrorist. I mean, Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev had just said at the Munich Security Conference in Germany last week that hundreds and thousands of terrorists are being disguised as refugees, and they're going into Europe. Now, I want to make a comment that I said very controversially on social media and some of my articles, but our listeners need to hear it. It's about the influence of civilizationally dissimilar ways of people going into another zone. Now, when I mention this, I don't mean that by the very fact of these people being largely Arab, Muslim, is bad or disabled in and of itself. What I mean to say is that you take any civilization, any culture, especially one that's largely identity homogenous, 
such as many of these European states, Germany, for instance, and the Scandinavian countries. And you have a large-scale influx of people that are coming in that are so different. Instantaneously, there's going to be reaction from that host population, be it good, bad, extreme, moderate, left, right, all instances. You're going to have that, and that itself is very disruptive, not only for local resources and local communities, but on the scale. It creates a lot of unpredictable events, a lot of possibilities for violent outbreaks, be it the sexual terrorism that happened in Cologne or neo-Nazis, actual fascists attacking refugees are burning down their facilities. On the other hand, I want to also make a comment that about why these people are coming to Europe. Some of them are actually lured. Some of them are lured by Twitter campaigns that are actually hosted in the United States. Some of these people are sending out the tweets saying, come to Germany. They're from the United States. This has also been proven on one of the information mediums I work for, orientareview.org. They had an excellent site about who is Twitter luring refugees to Germany. Now, something else, too, is that some of these people, you know, it's almost ironic in a way that Europe's soft power, I think, in a way, it almost was too good. Now, what I mean, Patrick, is that Europe had presented this image of perfect utopia, no sexism, no racism, complete multiculturalism, you don't have to integrate, don't have to assimilate, just move to a neighborhood, speak your language, it's okay. All these welfare handouts, I mean, it's basically like heaven on earth is what they were presenting themselves as. Now, me and you and a lot of our listeners in the West know this isn't true in reality, but we believe recognize this is how our governments promote themselves. Now, in an area where, let's just say, some of these parts of Syria and Iraq and all across the world, these migrants, they're not just from Syria. I mean, they're from all across the world, okay? They're thinking in their head, wow, okay, I can go here. I can have all this stuff that I want. Not only that, there was kind of a perception through the popular culture that some women are very, quote, unquote, sexually easy, at least compared to their cultures. So some of these young men, they're thinking, wow, this is, I mean, this is like hitting the jackpot. I can go here and do all this stuff. I'm not blaming I'm not blaming the people themselves. What I am saying is that the government did kind of create an image, also helped lure, contributed to this migration. Now, of course, as we know, because it's strategically engineered, the architects, in this case the United States, working hand-in-glove with Turkey, Turkey is using these refugees as leverage for accelerating its entry into the EU. They were already aware of all the different sociological factors that were at play. That's why cultural anthropologists, they don't just work in research institutions, they work with the government, they work with intelligence agencies. They provide the valued contextual information that's necessary for maximizing these types of information campaigns. Because at the end of the day, an information campaign doesn't mean anything unless you actually get someone to take action, no matter what that action may be, no matter how one quantifies it. Let's just say sharing a, sharing a page on Facebook from an information medium or actually packing up your stuff and going halfway across the world, unnecessary. If you're trying to save your life, you don't have to halfway across the world when there's safe havens right next door in many cases. Yeah, well, you talked about the, uh, the you know, the, I called it the grapevine. And uh, when I spoke to some of the immigrants from, uh, from Guatemala, uh, literally at the at the Greyhound bus station, I spoke to a couple of them, and they said, "Well, you know, how is how how is it that people are finding out about this uh, to to come to America now?" He said, "Well, it's just like the grapevine." He said, you know, "So we hear it on the grapevine. It, it the word travels, and and social media is a huge huge tool in this because 
that never in history, and if you think about this, and I, I spoke about technology uh, in the first hour and how technology and the con- not just the convenience culture, but the technology and, and communication itself it has the potential to radically change uh, the dynamics of how these uh, games of social engineering can be played to almost a real-time aspect of it. In other words, I could start... Uh, a Twitter campaign or a social media campaign saying, everybody, you know, if you can emigrate to America before uh, January 1st, you're going to get citizenship. And and your family will get citizenship too. And so, and you just put this out as a mem, and all of a sudden, and then the coyotes are there to, ba- the, the, the people smugglers are ready to go. They're ready to go, and they're profiting from this trade and the transport of these people. It's all; it can be very well coordinated by using the internet, by using social media to put out the word, and then the word on the street starts permeating, and then the coyotes are ready to go, and all of a sudden it starts. It starts, and then the the, the flood becomes beyond what's manageable in terms of whatever the in- infrastructure that was in place, and certainly we're seeing that in Europe. So. I'm going to say I totally agree with what you said there with regards to, you know, Twitter and things like that. People don't realize how powerful that this new tool is. And and if you can weapon in to weaponize something like immigration, when you have complete disparity between the rich north and the poor south, for instance, to use a crude metaphor, it it, it is an absolute you can set things on fire, literally immediately um and and i think that's a part of what we're seeing here yeah and actually when you mentioned when you spoke about the guatemalan situation and grapevine and the twitter campaigns it made me realize right now something very similar is actually occurring in the united states right now with cuban quote-unquote refugees actually this is a perfect case in point of weapons of mass migration right now and i'll explain to our audience we know that the u.s has had a policy since 1966 i believe it's called the cuban adjustment act or something like that colloquially known as wet foot dry foot basically if a cuban gets caught overseas trying to you know make their way to the u.s in a boat they're sent back they set foot in the united states they they get on the road to citizenship they get welfare benefits housing sites and so on and so forth they're actually treated as first class privileged citizens so anyhow the whole point was to politically try to encourage people to leave cuba because of the Cold War tensions. Now, what's happening in the current context is, even though the U.S. is supposedly warming up to Cuba, this is just a good cop way of doing what the bad cop couldn't do. So what's happening now is a lot of these people in Cuba, they know about this policy, but they're thinking, well, the window of opportunity is kind of going to be drawing down. They hear all these rumors of the grapevine, as you so brilliantly put it, that, hey, in the future, Obama might cut off his policy what am I going to do? Now, mind you, these people would not have even thought of taking advantage of the policy anyhow in the first place, but they feel this, like, unexplainable pressure from above, like, wow, I never wanted to, but now that I think about it, it's either now or never. Okay, shucks, I'm going to do it. And I have a statistic for you, Patrick. From uh, the, the calendar year, the way that the U.S. was uh, counting this ended on September 20th. So from last September 20th, 2015 to September 20th, 2014, 45,000 Cubans made this journey to compare to the last year there's about 36,000 now it's expected that the current year might get anywhere close to even a hundred thousand well, let's keep in mind this is an island of about you know 10 to like 15 million people or so so what i'm getting at here though is that these people are also going through the same route the guatemalans did except they're t- they're beginning in ecuador well they were now there's some complications but they're going forward they're 
passing through some countries, destabilizing them through their very presence. Nicaragua had to say, hey, we're shutting our borders to all Cubans that don't have a visa. We're not being part of this game. We don't want to do what the U.S. is pushing us to do. Costa Rica, on the other hand, said, hey, if you got the money, we'll fly them out to Mexico. They can cross the border on foot, Laredo, Texas. That's happening right now. So something else now, when you mentioned coyotes, it's very important to uh, inform our listeners that all these uh, human smugglers that are involved, the ones in Turkey, the Turkish mafia ones that are quote-unquote involved, the Albanian mafia in the Balkans and the coyotes, they're all affiliated with different intelligence organizations. I'll explain. Turkish mafia, very close to the MIT, which is like the Turkish CIA. Albanian mafia, well, we all know they've been, they're spawned by the United States intelligence, by CIA, and they're actually helping to transit these people through the Balkans. And the coyotes, they're very close with the DEA. And, I mean, if anyone has any questions about that, I have three words for you. Fast and Furious, the gun smuggling operation to arm Mexican cartels. El Chapo even had a Fast and Furious gun when they caught him, okay? That's right. And about, yeah, and about social media, I wrote a book about hybrid wars. It was published by the People's Friendship University through the institute that uh, I'm an expert of. It's available for free on the Internet on orientalreview.org. Go there, click on the right, you'll see a link for hybrid wars. You can download the PDF. And I explain hybrid wars as in the regime change perspective. I'm not talking about economic, political warfare. I'm looking at strictly in regime change and pressuring a government in the most barbaric ways possible. And I say that failed color revolutions transition into unconventional wars, using Syria and Ukraine before the coup as a template. Why I'm referencing the book now is because a lot of what I read about and I document, most of my sources, at least over 90% of them, are from Western sources. Everything is verifiable. Everything is cross-referenced. It's not just like a link that appeared once on RT and that's it, for example. These things are have been cross-pollinated through different media platforms. And I explain in depth how social media, particularly Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Google Maps, Google Earth, are used for organizing these types of color revolutions and asymmetrical destabilizations. And it's really important to uh, to consider that, as you mentioned, Patrick, People don't realize how social media can be weaponized, how mass migrations can be weaponized. And it goes to show we are in a generation of not just fourth generation warfare. I say it's actually possibly even fifth generation warfare because anything and everything can be weaponized, be it religion. We see the U.S. and Saudi Arabia manufacturing the the Sunni-Shia split to turn a socio-religious, um, dispute, which had laid dormant for over a thousand years, for the most part, into an actual concrete tool of geopolitics. We see that, I mean, yeah, religious organizations, even organizations, they're very often used and manipulated in South Asia, in Nepal, in India, as elements of destabilization. Why is it that almost every American that gets arrested in North Korea happens to be a quote-unquote missionary? I mean, the things that people thought were sacred, they were off off, you know, the table, and then you couldn't even touch it as a tool, are now turning into weapons. Even a human being, a real refugee, that may not even understand what's going on that says, hey, I want to go to Germany because my family's there and I heard it's good, and the U.S. destroyed my homeland. Just them, by being in Germany, by taking that route through the Balkans, politically volatile states that are being targeted by U.S. regime change operations because of the Chinese Balkan and the Russian Balkan, or as I or a Balkan stream, or as many people call it, Turkish stream project, they don't realize it, but they're being weaponized. And that's what the fifth generation warfare is. That's the real hybrid war of destabilization. Forget the quote-unquote propaganda and sanctions. 
this is real hybrid war. So, so your 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 book, the hybrid hybrid warfare. Now, uh, what's interesting when when you sent me the uh, the link. Uh, and to the NATO Defense College in Rome, and isn't this interesting that the NATO Defense College in Rome have, have quoted you uh, in this report? And it's what I find interesting. I'll get your comment about it. But what I found mm-hmm. interesting is on you know talking about hybrid war. So they're basically. It, it's funny how when they did quote you, uh, they they made a subtle accusation of uh, bias or something about your political bias. We don't know if uh, Andrew Karibko is uh, politically biased or not. So and it's I, again, this is a, a a matter of perspective, and we see this uh, time and time again. This polarized perspective, whereby of course NATO doesn't have a bias according to NATO. Of course, of, <laughs> of course you have a bias, um, but you know why can't why can't an analyst from Russia have an opinion that's that's well researched, that's cross referenced, that's based on fact? Why does that have to be called bias? That's that's a huge stumbling block to have any kind of bilateral dialogue about any of these, especially with people that are absolutely, you know, your your average uh, British establishment, um, even Guardian. Uh, writer or editor or independent forget about the independent we know the the problems with that newspaper but um the uh th- this issue of bias comes up time and time again you're talking about color revolutions you're talking about uh regime change operations by using uh flash mobs the color mobs fifth you're talking about fifth generation warfare and this isn't something that's just coming out of you know, the, the Russia, this is, this is a reality for, uh, so many people around the world. And, and I think it's this kind of, mm, I don't know how to describe it. It's resistance by people even in the West in accepting that this is, so they call it American influence in this document, right? But, or they call it Western influence. What is the difference between Western influence and Western subterfuge? Because I don't see any difference there. You know, there's there's really not much because right now, maybe in the past there could have been layers. Maybe the layers could have been as clearly discernible as water and oil in the same jug. No longer, it's no longer like that anymore. Actually, it's more like vinegar and baking soda. They come together and you have an explosion. Why I say this is because American influence is not benign. Even if in its most immediate impression it appears to be benign, it all it, it is crafted in a way to use in order to get deep into a country's psyche. It's part of this social preconditioning. Now, by that, what I mean is, let's just take the perfect example. Kanye West or Kim Kardashian, any of these other schmucks, they can have, let's just say, a song, a video, a show, whatever. Okay, they're doing it for their own means. They want to get rich quick, whatnot. The U.S. takes that. The U.S. intelligence agencies look at that, and they're gauging, okay, what is the reaction? How are people responding? Okay, wow, pretty interesting. They're responding positively towards this, this, and that. I mean, there's so many different behavioral psychologists that are working to plan these things. It's not just like a mad scientist in a, in a dark basement in Langley just looking at a map and just tackling to himself and salmon over to that country. I mean, these are people that are dead serious about what they're doing, and they're planning it down to a T. And they have many different branches and many different... Many different just ways of uh, of adapting this situation. That's why my book, the full title is Hybrid War, the Indirect Adaptive Approach to Regime Change. Because these are systems, these patterns and frameworks that are easily adaptable. Using influence as a battering ram, using this type of culture, even language to an extent, as a battering ram. And what happens with these uh, 
hybrid wars and American influence and subterfuges, when it happens, if a government or a host population isn't even aware that it's going on, it seems like it came out of nowhere. We take Ukraine, 2014, for an example. You know, Patrick, I was in Kiev when it first happened. I was a master's student at my university, MGMO, in Moscow, Moscow City International Relations, and a Polish colleague said, Andrew, hey, there might be a revolution in uh, Ukraine again. Why don't you go with me? We'll take a train. And he was doing some pro-Western reporting. He didn't, he didn't realize that I have a completely different view, even though I am originally, quote-unquote, from the West. I went with him, man. He was doing translation. It was you know, a really nice guy. Nothing bad to say about him personally, even though I completely disagree with his political outlook on things. But I saw firsthand some of these NGOs working. I was introduced to some of them. One of the groups is called Chesnok, which means like garlic or something like that in Italian and Russian. This is a group that was telling me that they were getting money from Chatham House. They were getting support from them. And I'm seeing, I'm looking with my own eyes, and I'm seeing over the three days I was in Kiev, I published the pictures on my Facebook account. My Facebook is public. People can check it out and see those pictures of how the people were organizing. They were starting in parks. Everything was pre-planned using Google Maps, knowing what time they're going to start, where they're going to meet, how they're going to uh, proceed down the street, where they're going to gather at the actual Maidan, and what they're going to do afterwards. The stages were already set up. I saw it with my own eyes, Patrick. And that's what inspired me. I said, wait, hold on a second. Like, really, like when I thought these things, you know, people think to themselves, well, you know, I think something's going on, but maybe it's just a fear. I don't know for sure. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. These people were talking to me because I have an American passport, and they think I'm sympathetic. So they're just spilling their guts to me about how this stuff works. And then <laughs> I had a colleague. Well, I have a colleague from Syria, and she told me uh, in January of the next year, January 2014, she said, Andrew, what's happening in Ukraine is the same thing that happened in my country. And that's when I said, wow, there's a pattern here. And I decided to write the book. Wow. And, and, you know, what you're talking about before about this, uh, so the, before fifth, you know, during the fourth generation warfare, the, the, the sort of underlying, you know, the, the sort of padding under the carpet was perfectly described in this book, uh, by Matthew Frazier called Weapons of Mass Distraction. And that was, it's Weapons of Mass Distraction, Soft Power in the American Empire. And he talks about, this is before, this fifth generation warfare. This is when it was, uh, you talked about the language, uh, being used as a kind of a battering ram, if you will. He's talking about McDonald's and the sort of corporate brands. And this was, a, this was the time when the corporate brands were making their way and uh, sort of permeating all these different countries and regions around the world and establishing some kind of a cultural footprint, if you will, a uh, corporate footprint, really, not a cultural footprint, but a corporate footprint. But that was the weapons of mass distraction that was a kind of to me a phase one and what you're talking what you've added on top here uh is with the age of the internet this has unleashed the fifth generation of this this sort of the the, the, the next aspect of this kind of not I, I wouldn't say cultural warfare but yeah hybrid war as you as you described it yeah, and actually, you know, uh, remember when I mentioned earlier, I said when you have an information campaign, be it run by someone from an alternative media or you have a government going from top down, the objective is to actually make someone take some type of action, you read that article or go out to the street or whatnot. And, you know, what I look at is I look at how the information campaigns actually get people out into the street. And you also have structural engineering. I spoke about social engineering and weapons of mass distraction seems to have perfectly elaborated on that. But structural engineering could be things such as sanctions. 
It could be something such as a change in the regional geopolitical environment that puts undue and unnecessary and pre-planned stress on the host population. And I want to also mention something else more about this fifth-generation warfare that I described. Fourth-generation warfare dealt primarily with recognized military groups or insurgents, basically things like you look at them, you know they're kind of a quote-unquote bad guy or a target. This fifth-generation warfare, you can have you don't know who is the friend and who is the foe, and most of it originally comes from inside the country. So it's citizens against citizens, mm-hmm. fighting against one another, even if not formally like fist fights yet, the idea is to get it to that point. And then that's when you have, if the color revolution starts failing, as it dramatically was failing in Syria, that's when the international mercenaries come in, and that failed color revolution transitions into urban terrorism, like we saw in Maidan right before the coup, or and or into an actual unconventional war, like what's happening with the terrorist groups in Syria. So why it's such a dilemma? for targeted governments is when it first starts, even if they know what's going on, they're kind of like in a corner. They don't know what to do, how to respond. I mean, how do you find the right line in proportionally responding to what otherwise looks like a nonviolent protest, but you already have information that there's going to be a couple of provocateurs. They're going to throw improvised explosives at some civilians, at some of your police. They're going to try to provoke an attack and they're going to hide within the group of regular people holding up a sign, they don't realize what they got themselves into because they're human shields. These things work by bringing human shields out into the streets to surround and swarm and protect, without even realizing it, the implanted provocateurs that are trying to provoke the state crackdown in order to quickly go up that escalation ladder. Yeah, so so in, in the way I imagine this is, if we look at, uh, take the European migrant crisis, um, that you're you're forcing you're 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 forcing a, a factor a variable and a radical uh, into this equation, and then you know the way that the paradigm is constructed in in Europe and in the West is they they have everyone looking and focusing on the migrants and seeing that okay this is the center of our problem this is the author of our pain and what 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 the real intention is it's nothing to do so much as with the migrants as it is with being able to to use the migrants to divide uh society into its respective compartments in the west and get them to basically battle against each other and so that that would be the ultimate victory if you were this sort of social engineer was is to further divide society to further uh weaken and compartmentalize society by introducing a free radical uh l- like a migrant surge right yes it's actually exactly what's happening and this brings us back to uh talking particularly about what's happening in germany nowadays i mean germany is but the most high profile example but what the u.s is trying to do here is create these social disturbances of, as I call it, Habesian warfare, warfare of all against all. You have three primary actors here, citizens, be they moderate, regular citizens, far left, far right, hardcore militant communist, hardcore neo-Nazi fascists. You have refugees, moderate, radical, just average people, North Africa, Mideast, could be from anywhere now at this point, Afghanistan. Then you have the government. You have this kind of triangle that's, fighting against one another, both within their category and between the categories. And what this does is this creates such a dilemma for the government, because right now you have both citizens and quote-unquote guests, as I'm referring to the migrants, or non-citizens that are in the country, 
everything's getting destabilized. You're not sure what to do. And this creates a strategic opening for, uh, I don't want to, we can call it chaos, but chaos in the sense of controlled and predicted chaos. But this type of tool, this chaos, this Pandora's box, is not entirely controllable. It gets out of control. Sometimes that's the point. Other times it's incidental and say, hey, you know what, we're going to watch it and we're going to see how it goes. The point here is why Germany is being targeted. First of all, it's the leader of the EU, economic engine and political engine. It's the integrational core. Secondly, and what's very important from the geopolitical standpoint, is, is Germany has been working with Russia with Nord Stream 2. This is the pipeline that's going to go underneath the Baltic. It's going to follow Nord Stream 1, which was inaugurated in the middle of the last decade. And it's going to obviously pump Russian gas to Europe. The United States is dead set against it. If there's any good thing about Merkel, I say, it's that she agreed to this project. But that project is now turning out to be her ultimate demise. Mm-hmm. Now, also, about this, uh, about the geopolitical aspect is China is doing something very discreetly, but it's very, very important. It's what I call the Balkan Silk Road. It's a high-speed railroad from Budapest to the Greek port of Piraeus, right outside of Athens, one of the largest and most busy ports in Europe. And what they want to do is they want to use this as a backdoor for kind of projecting multipolar influence into the EU, and it's also going to run along the exact same route as Turkish slash Balkan Stream, which is currently suspended because of the Turkish hostilities and aggression. But what's important here is if we look at this, if our listeners pull up a map of the Balkans, they see it goes through Greece, Republic of Macedonia, Serbia, and Hungary, both these projects, Russian and Chinese ones. And these are the countries that are the most destabilized right now. I mean, the Republic of Macedonia is about to have an early election around the 24th of April. That can go anyway. It can go really bad. I've written about it. I have some forecasts that are publicly available. Greece right now is just in uproar. People are just basically rioting. It's turning into a failed state. It was manufactured that way. Serbia, I mean, Serbia, which just happened uh, last week, the parliament agreed to the NATO Individual Partnership Action Plan. Very disgraceful, very shameful. Horrible that the government did that, but that happened. And we see in Hungary, I mean, John McCain called Viktor Orban a neo-fascist dictator, quote-unquote, last year. (laughs) So we see who's targeted for regime change right now, and we see why it is. You look at the geopolitical component and refugees kind of being the catalyst for creating that conflict. And there you go. That's what you have right now. Yeah, I think the Chi- the Chinese uh, project is is very interesting. That's th- that's absolutely you can kind of verify a motive there. If you look at a lot of other uh, similar situations in recent history, I'll take uh, North and South Sudan as an example. Uh, the Chinese pipeline and the Chinese uh, oil projects that were uh, underway many projects actually but especially uh, by the chinese uh in sudan and then all of a sudden as if by magic uh overnight a partition of that country takes place which effectively isolates and cuts off uh the chinese oil project from the 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 seaport uh in i believe northern sudan so that was engineered and in a way libya uh is also can be Described in that way, uh, the Chinese took a big bath in Libya. You ha- and you have to imagine they had uh, something like between 14 and uh, $20 billion in cash invested. Now, when you talk about money, that's real money. That's not just uh, funny money in bonds. That's real cash. And they basically wrote it all off. Uh, when the state, when the Libyan uh, government collapsed, so they had to more or less walk away. 
uh, at least temporarily from that investment. So you see this Chinese uh, projects getting hit uh, indirectly, if you will, uh, in many, t- many places around the world. Yeah, and actually, when you mentioned uh, South Sudan, you know, we're talking about what's ha- what has had been happening in Syria, Ukraine, Balkans, Germany. I'm actually working on something right now, and it, I'm having a research series that's going to be unveiled at orientalreview.org in the coming weeks. I've been working on it for about a couple months already. I've actually been able to patternize and predict where these destabilizations are going to happen, and it's quite simple, Patrick. We look at these transnational connective infrastructure projects, particularly the Silk Roads, be it Balkan Silk Road or Russia's Eurasian integration, could be pipeline, could be any type of economic facilitation, what have you, okay? But primarily Silk Roads, you look at where they are, and the law of hybrid war, as I'm ostensibly titling this series, is that these hybrid wars that we described are being used to disrupt transnational multipolar connective infrastructure projects using identity conflict in the targeted states. And I actually break down six different uh, sociopolitical vulnerabilities that I examine. I look at ethnicity, religion, history, socioeconomic disparities, and physical and political geography within the targeted state in kind of finding out ways that identity separateness, whether organic or, you know, being completely manufactured or even just provoked, a type of middle composite case here, can be used to spark these hybrid wars. And we see that in Europe, in the European test case. What we learned, or what I've learned rather, is that you know, in order to set this off, they needed a completely foreign, large-scale element, a variable, unexpected variable inserted uncontrollably and consistently into Europe in order to create the hybrid war conditions. Right now, there's over a million of these refugees in Germany. They're not all going to be kicked out no matter what happens in Germany. And especially if right-wing resentment increases, these people are going to fight back. They're going to fight with their backs against the wall for their lives. It's going to get pretty bad. Now, what we see here is like is it's already embedded in the state. This is actually a, a political factor in German society now that no one yet has to speak about because it's seen as politically incorrect. And that's something else I want to address real quick for our listeners is, you know, some people, even those that might have the best of intentions in their hearts, they, they kind of, some people get very offended by this talk. Like this talk that we're having, I've been slurred as a, racist, fascist, white supremacist, just for talking about this forecast. I don't support fascist, hardcore communist, Islamic radicals, any of these disruptors. But just by simply breaching the wall of political correctness and speaking about it, it's seen as so taboo, no one can do it. But interestingly enough, thank God, Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev broke that political correctness barrier last week in Munich when he directly said that hundreds and thousands of people are coming in to the EU as refugees, but they're terrorists. And he also said that many people want to get benefits and not earn them and not work for them. Yeah, and, and I think there there is a, a huge component uh, it, that are essentially job seekers, uh, and and that's a, that's a separate uh, category. It's a separate argument altogether. And uh, when you when you introduce, when you force something, in other words, when you ram uh, a problem or you ram you know, millions of people uh, or even hundreds of thousands of people into an environment that maybe uh, is is not going to be uh, that uh, sympathetic. 
uh, to that sort of situation, you're going to get a reaction. And this is the problem with the conversation, especially in Europe, with the left. And you talked about this idealized, uh, you know, the difference between the reality and the idealized uh, image of modern Europe. And they're two different things. Anyone who's lived in Europe uh, can, can attest to that. There's, it's got its problems. It has its historical and generational problems with everything, uh, racism, uh, economic disparity, uh, cultural clash, uh, you name it, Europe's got it in, in all over the place. And so there's that difference between the reality and the idealized image. And the problem is there are elements on the left that are almost cheering on the migrant crisis because they want to see, and this is my personal uh opinion of it and you you know people can disagree with me on this but i think there are elements of the so-called left and i say so-called because to, as i explained in the first hour of this program uh, the left and the right is a fabricated political construct and on all the machinations of it are equally fabricated and unauthentic uh in in the modern 21st century in my opinion okay there are elements of the left that w- they want to see a bloodbath they they want to see it pushed because they believe that with that sort of uh, 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 street street warfare that they will somehow rise to prominence and their system will become finally adopted, you know. And and so equally we have the same thing, Andrew, on the right. We have people that want to see a bloodbath. We have the national fronts. We have the Pegidas uh, who wouldn't have had a seat at the table. All of a sudden they do now. They feel very empowered by it. And, and, and they want to see a bloodbath because they believe this will reach them closer to the promised land, which is total lustration, uh, ethnic cleansing, you know, get them on boxcars and, and send them either out of the country or to hold them in camps indefinitely. Okay, I'm not exaggerating, Andrew. This is the base mentality of both the right and the left in many cases. Yes, that's exactly what's happening. And uh, before I, you know, I add some more to that because I have some really uh, good ideas to contribute. I want to actually quote what uh, Prime Minister Mayweather said. It's available on the website government.ru. He said, "Not to mention the fact that hundreds and thousands of extremists enter Europe under the guise of being refugees." Other migrants are people of an absolutely different culture who only want to receive monetary benefits without doing anything to earn that. He then goes on to say the next target, this is key, by saying the next target, he is implicitly recognizing this is a pre-planned scenario that is capable of being predicted, will be the cultural space and even the European identity. Now, as we've been discussing and as you had just you know, very brilliantly elaborated, that the left and the right, the hardcore elements of both, they want to see this. They're using this. They're exploiting this. They're saying, okay, I, I care about the refugees, so I want this to happen. Or they're saying, I care about the locals, I want this to happen. Whatever they're saying, they're exploiting it. This is very important because the way I look at it is some, most people think there's a line. that the left and the left, the right and the right. But actually, I've come across a very interesting theory last week saying that it's not a political line. It's a political circle. So visualize a circle. The bottom of it is the center. Where you know the people, the average run-of-the-mill idea of what is normal, right? Then you have the left curving up to the left, the right curving up to the right. Eventually, they meet at the top of the circle. So the extreme, the most extreme elements, the top of the circle represents the most extreme elements. Both the extreme left and extreme right are basically the same thing. They meet on that point. And what's interesting about that too is that, you know, what I think is happening is 
there's kind of like an identity crisis going on. Identity crisis all around the way. Identity crisis with these refugees, migrants, what have you, how, how they identify when they enter Europe, how Europeans are identifying their country, their neighborhoods, their future. And I look at the governments that have enabled this, not only the ones that have actually contributed actively and directly to the wars, you know, in the Mideast and North Africa, but the ones that, hey, come one, come all, we are multicultural society, well, in the Western conception of multicultural. And what I see to blame here is a naive, overly utopian idea of what I call, and many people have called, cultural Marxism. Now, no cultural Marxist calls themselves that. This is an excellent or a word given by people outside the community to describe them. In brief, how I summarize cultural Marxism in um, relevancy to this topic is people that say that culture, identity, all this stuff, religion, has no factor at all and is just an imaginary construct that it's so imaginary you shouldn't even talk about it. It's like talking about unicorns and dragons, why talk about it? So they discount this very important element of identity in all the manifestations and they say it doesn't matter. They say you can take someone that was, you know, if someone was a shopkeeper, let's just say in uh, Jordan, for example, and you can send him to Copenhagen, and there's not going to be a problem. He can speak Arabic in his community and not have to learn Danish, and regular Danes are not going to feel offended if he's getting a bunch of welfare subsidies, for example. Now, we see this as oversimplification, of course, but we know, regular, obviously, regular people obviously know, as you mentioned, there's going to be a reaction, especially when there's a large scale import of these people. I mean, and what's happening is creating problems and facilitated by the cultural Marxist ideals of the EU elite. And now I want to draw back for a quick second uh, to what you mentioned about Guatemala at the beginning of our interview. That also was facilitated by cultural Marxist ideas of some of the American elite. It does not matter if Democrat, which are doing it because they want an indebted uh, dependent class of voters or Republicans that they just want the cheap labor. You have these people that say, look, we're looking at them not from the point of identity, but from politics, economics, because identity doesn't matter. And that's part of the problem, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, look, we're going to take a short... Andrew, can you stay over for the next hour? Because uh, I, I... Yeah, I could... Okay, great. Because there's so much to get to. I want to. I want to talk about uh, Turkey. I want to talk about Germany, Hungary. Uh, I want to talk about TTIP as well, and a number of these things. So hopefully we're going to getting this, this. This is a vast subject, and we're only scraping the surface of it right now. Um, hopefully we're going to get a little bit more out of this subject uh, in the next hour. So stay right there. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host Patrick Hanks, and we'll be right back after these messages. Don't go away. Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com.
ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for joining us in the third and final hour of Overdrive, and we're rejoined by our guest from the previous hour. We put it over over the overtime stream uh, with our guest uh, Andrew Karibko. Back to the migrant crisis now, um, uh, Andrew and uh, everyone else. I'm going to play you this uh, clip. This was a debate which happened on RT. Now, uh, when I saw this, I was immediately uh, applauding RT for actually having a knockdown, knuckle, uh, bare knuckle, drag out fight. On in the middle of headline news segment, evening news, they had uh, the columnist from the Daily Mail, Katie Hopkins, and uh, Mo Ansar. Uh, Katie representing the kind of um, your classic uh, right wing reactionary viewpoint of the migrant crisis, and also of touting feminist uh, platitudes as well. And Mo Ansar defending the uh, the the British Muslims and the immigrants and uh, the multicultural society and so forth um i agree with both of them on many levels um but the the problem is the way this debate has descended uh into the kind of blood sport that it has become uh i think it's almost like out the window with all airs and graces all those things that that britain britain used to be famous for uh is all out the window right now and you can see this is also a sign of the degenerate degenerative um malaise of modern society in the fact that people can't um you know have a you know a cogent intelligent debate on the subject but it is revealing and i applaud rt for showing us this audio clip nine listen this is just a sample did they they let this go on for like 15 minutes i was so impressed that they just let it free flow basically but here's just a small clip of that we played a bit at the beginning of the show but uh roll roll number nine the topic slightly. A recent survey in France asked people how they'd react if their children were to marry Muslims. More than half of those surveyed said they would be against it. Is this not a strong sign that the, uh, the anti-Muslim sentiment is not being tackled effectively? Yeah, I think the, uh, the rise of far-right prejudice and hate and hysteria and anti-Muslim animus and attacks, fire bombings on mosques, killings of people in the street and attacks everywhere, I think we've seen this dark cloud rise again across Europe. And it's what history teaches us. Every so often, Europe seems to lose its way. It disconnects itself from its past, from its traditions of tolerance and liberalism and of having an exceptional attitude towards the other. And I think this is exactly the kind of hate and hysteria and right-wing rhetoric that we're seeing. The fact that many people in uh, Europe today, and certainly in Britain, are swayed by disgusting, xenophobic, hate-filled arguments by the likes of Katie Hopkins and the far-right and Pegida and the BNP and the English Defence League. And I do hold governments complacent here, and I do hold governments uh, responsible here for their complacency and their acquiescence. We need to clamp down on this kind of hate speech. We have a great tradition of reaching out to uh, immigrants, people in need of humanitarian efforts throughout the Second World War and, and to the idea that Muslims are somehow the other I think is terrible. It's, we, we cannot judge all white English women by the actions of extremists and hate preachers like Katie Hopkins. Just as similarly, you can't judge all immigrants and Muslims by the actions of a few. Katie, I want to come to you with a slightly different subject. We've seen leaflets handed out in uh, Europe to try and explain 
to some refugees how they should be, be behaving. Do you think there's um, any effectiveness achieved by these or is this a complete waste of time? No, I think they're a complete waste of time, actually. You know, in swimming pools when I was a child, it used to be no bombing, no diving, no heavy petting. You know, loads have come back, haven't they, because migrants don't know how to behave in swimming pools. But I don't think there's any point handing out leaflets. Because Jimmy Savile was a migrant. Jimmy Savile was a migrant, wasn't he, Katie? Sorry, sorry, could you stop, actually, Because Jimmy Savile was a migrant, wasn't he? Would you mind not talking, Mo? Because I'm talking, and actually, it's my time to talk. Um, so I don't think handing Stop out peddling lies, is helpful Katie. because this is. Would you mind, Mo? Uh, because it's culturally ingrained. These guys don't think white women are worth anything, and I think that's the tragedy. And what I find particularly peculiar in all of this, of course, is that Mo seems to find it inexplicable um, that uh, we have this attitude. Whereas, of course, if you go to Paris and you gun down 114 young people, if you gun down people on holiday, if you gun down people that are in Europe, that we're trying to create a culture of fear, that's why people are frightened of migrants, that's why people are frightened of Muslim men and I completely understand their fear and I look to stand up and speak for the British public who are sick of all of this, sick of welcoming migrants and want you to You don't have speak for the British public, Katie, you really don't speak for the British public. I think it's horrifying defended. that you think you speak for the British public uh, Katie, it's horrifying that you think you speak for the British public. Over yeah, and over again, we find that your views are complete anathema. They're, completely, they're complete anathema to the idea. Look, Europe is the richest continent in the world. We've got 740 million uh, inhabitants here. There is more than enough room. There's more than enough space. We have more than enough jobs. We have an ageing white British society, and we have a record structural deficit. Every bit of research, from the CBS to the Institute of Fiscal Studies to the Office of uh, uh, National Statistics, they all, and the Treasury's own figures say the same, which is migrants add value to the economy, they enrich our, our society, they bring multiculturalism, they bring um, added interest. We oh, have oh, criminality oh, oh. here, and the fact that Should we're we struggling book, with well some done. of this is, is uh, issues that we need to... Katar, get to, 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 to just figures, all Katar. you have is rhetoric. Okay, okay, so, so Andrew, Andrew, what do you make of that? Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. Okay, I, I got a lot to say, but first thing I want to say is that you look at migrants, you look at minority groups, and, well, you know, they, they are, in many ways, victims in some ways. So I don't want anyone to kind of misinterpret or purposefully take out of context what I'm about to say, but I see what both people are saying. I mean, what the one gentleman was saying, of course, he's 100% right that, there are some very negative pushbacks. There is this other relation of non, uh, non-majority titular groups, in this case, Muslims in the UK. And, but at the same time, one of the points the woman was trying to make is that, you know, some people come into a country and they don't want to assimilate or integrate. And that's creating problems. Now, I'd like to actually, while I was listening to that, I pulled up on my iPad, President Putin's 2012 Immigration Manifesto. I cited it in my SputnikNews.com column available on the right-hand side of the website. At the very bottom, I cited this in text hyperlink. And I want to just read real quickly how Russia views immigration, okay? So President Putin, when he was running for a president again, he was prime minister at the time, he said this, the melting pot of assimilation is highly volatile, pushed to its limits by the ever-increasing migration flow. This is 2012. In politics, this has found reflection in a multiculturalism which denies integration through assimilation. Although it makes the minority's right to be distinct absolute, it has little to balance this with public, 
behavioral, and cultural commitments of the population and society as a whole. The last part of the statement I want to read to you is this. Closed ethnic religious communities that form in many countries refuse not only to assimilate but even to adapt. There are neighborhoods and whole towns where generations of new arrivals live on benefits and do not speak the language of the country in which they live. So let's look at this. This is powerful. Many of those, you know, pseudo-left, you know, activists on social media, they're running around. I mean, they might be whatever they are in their day jobs. They're moonlighting as activists. They say, you know, we support Russia and foreign affairs, all this stuff. And they go on social media and they wage a vitriolic hate campaign. I guess private people like myself and other online activists that basically say the same thing. You know, these are real concerns. We need to keep this in mind. And they label them as racist, fascist, white supremacist. And then we look at this and we say, well, hold on a second. How do they balance these views with their supposed support for Russia when Russia has the same view, which is obviously not racist, not fascist, nor is it a white supremacist? So the way I look at it is this, is you have the Western version of multiculturalism, and President Putin expressed the horrible shortcomings. He also said this about the growth of xenophobia among the population and harsh attempts to protect their interests jobs and social benefits from immigrant rivals is the response seen in this behavioral model. Back to what me and you were talking about, Patrick, the response that states have and societies have to an influx of migrants. This is 2012 before the current crisis. Now, the way Russia kind of gets around this and adapts is Russia has Russian multiculturalism. It's completely different from the Western version of multiculturalism. It's all about assimilation integration, and most importantly, patriotism. Russia has had Muslims as part of the Russian Empire since the 1500s, since the Hanid of Kazan was integrated into, you know, the Russian state. And we look at this. Actually, most people know St. Basil's Cathedral from Red Square. That was built to commemorate the integration of Muslims into the Russian state from the 1500s. Now they're about 15% of the population, and I see them every day. I mean, I interact with them every day. They're, they are Russian. I mean, it doesn't matter what other identity they have. They're all part of a larger patriotic whole, which patriotism supersedes the state into a larger civilizational uh, package here. And I think that that's what I want. That was my main response, just to let people know. There is a different multiculturalism. The gentleman and the lady, they expressed uh, uh, kind of very, very polar opposite views of the Western conception. But there's a whole different paradigm out there, Patrick. There is, and it would all add to this as well. And I think your your comments about uh, Russia and its its uh, Muslim history is interesting, and I didn't know that about Red Square. Although I suspected it, the building did look uh, very Eastern uh, in its orientation. But um, having lived, you know, in Britain uh, for now over 20 years, um, one of the things I've noticed. Uh, having traveled throughout Europe and uh, through other parts of the world, but especially Europe and Britain, there's a big difference between uh, Britain and also France, you know, whereas the rest of Europe, Germany and Sweden, there's not this issue. And this is this. Britain ran a colonial empire uh, for the better part of two centuries. And through that process, it gained a lot of intelligence, cultural intelligence, and when they repatriated a number of people back to the British mainland, the Isle of Great Britain, or the, the British Isles, for various reasons of immigration, be it, uh, you know, upheaval back home or economic growth or industrial growth uh, through various waves of immigration into Britain, 
Britain had something uh, which bound together. In, it's, it's very different the, the, than it would be. The, the, the Britain could take a lot more in terms of integration than a lot of countries. They've got language, uh, which is really first and foremost. Uh, they have able to manage independent cultures. I mean, London is a great example. Uh, maybe London's an island on its own. You know, maybe it's not the way everywhere, but uh, it's a great example of how each particular uh, area of New York is similar too. But you have other uh, cities around Britain that have, you know, ethnic uh, corridors or communities, if you will. Uh, and so this is something that's learned over a long period of time. The French have the language too. The French have culture. But Britain has maintained some kind of national identity, whereas everybody in mainland Europe has been losing national identity uh, to the overarching EU kind of umbrella, if you will. It's kind of sucked out the nation-state identity out of a lot of these countries where they're sort of in a halfway house position right now. And I think countries like Germany, Sweden are definitely in that category, um, you know, being core kind of uh, white Northern European members of the EU. Uh, so Britain's always been known as been a bit wild and woolly. They were wild and woolly before, you know, immediately after the Second World War, when the wind rush came from West India, from the West Indies, and, and also from uh, India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. That wave started coming, or the first wave started coming there, and also from Nigeria and stuff like that. So Britain's got a leg up in, in, in a big way. France does too, in a certain way, but it's not as... In a way, Britain's diversity almost kind of protects it in a way, whereas France maybe doesn't have that same level of diversity, perhaps. I don't know. But one can always look at this and try to analyze, you know, how some, how, how is it that some countries, uh, might weather this storm better than others is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a very topical to discuss. And I think uh, something else that's, uh, attached to that is, what is the moral responsibility of these host countries to accept these refugees, economic migrants, what have you, whatever they, or whatever they're going to be classified? And how do you balance that with the responsibility of the locals? Because I mean, there is a very radical argument that I've uh, come across online that says, "Well, if the locals pay taxes, they vote. They're responsible for all the wars of their government because they're not out on the street overthrowing their government." Okay, hold on a second. 95% of the people in these countries are not going to protest their government in that way for regime change. That's the whole reason why the U.S. is engineering color revolution scenarios using weapons of mass migration. But what have you is that you have these people that they have a type of schadenfreude for these countries. I mean, even they say, well, hey, they deserve it. Okay, don't get me wrong. You know, U.S., EU, I mean, they're destroying these countries. I mean, it's horrible. It's a sin of, of unprecedented proportions, but what about the average Joe and Jane that, you know, are married, they want to have a kid, or they already have a kid, they're just living their lives, they're not politically aware, they don't have that much time to follow up on news for whatever reason, I'm not judging them one way or another, and this stuff's happening to them, and they have all these people flooding into their communities, they're fearful, crime's being increased, they have some fear-mongering reports in the media, some stuff is being swept under the rug, some stuff is undoubtedly true to a larger extent than is even being recognized. How do you really help those people? And how do you balance this, you know, uh, ethical, moral responsibility that those oppressive governments have to take in the people? And this just creates a larger problem. And you know what, Patrick? It makes me, it makes me want to tell you guys something personal, okay? Now, it may sound like to some that I'm here criticizing refugees and whatnot, but I'll tell you. I know what the refugee experience is like because my grandparents, on my mom's side, were refugees from World War II. 
They left Slovenia and they lived in an Austrian refugee facility. It wasn't like the air-conditioned facilities they have in Scandinavia and Germany right now. They were in some pretty bad conditions, and they were in Austria for a couple of years, but they were so thankful that their life was saved after World War II. They didn't think about, wow, I'm just going to keep going until I get to the Netherlands or something like that. They were like, hey, this is a safe place, the end of the war. Thank God we're safe. We're going to do what we have to do. And then they eventually got sponsored by a family member to come to the United States. This is my mom's side of the family. So I think to myself, here are these people going halfway across the world. They're not happy in Lebanon. They're not happy in Jordan. You know, Turkey has its problems. Don't get me wrong. They're totally exploiting many refugees. But they say, hey, I want to go all the way up to Finland, for example. Well, what? You're passing through a bunch of safe countries on the way. What, you don't want to be Serbian? You don't want to be Croatian? I mean, why why are you just going to Finland? Of course, it's not not doing it for the Finnish culture, all due respect. They're not doing it for the Finnish language, one of the hardest to learn in the world. They're doing it for the benefit. They're not real refugees in that sense. Or maybe they were. Maybe some of them started as real refugees, and they got on this gravy train of, wow, I can just get all these free benefits and everything. Because I know from my family's experience, they would never burn down a refugee camp like some refugees have done in Slovenia last year. They would never be brawling with the other people in the facility. They would never be attacking people in the host country. If you're thankful for someone saving your life, I don't care who you are, what your identity is, you don't behave that way if you're a real refugee. Yeah. Yeah, and so in, in this in this case, you do have, and, you know, I, I deplore and I... Uh, talk against the what i call the fake clash of civilizations narrative uh from continent to continent as as is uh, embodied in things like uh you know huntington or the uh project for a new american century but when you do force uh situations like what i believe is being engineered right now in europe um you do have a clash there is a real clash of civilizations that will occur just by the sheer mass of the problem right Whereas yes, absolutely. Yeah, and this this is why this is a different conversation because the sheer mass of the problem being introduced at the speed, and also with 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 the help of a lot of inaccurate uh, media reports and representations, and a lot of uh, unauthentic political reactionary movements, in my opinion, um, are not helping the situation either. And what what the common thread here, and you talked about your grandparents being refugees, I think that's really interesting because they're more or less in the same position as someone who's a refugee from Syria or Uzbekistan right now who's trying to make their way into Europe. They're, they're fleeing uh, destabilization, basically. They're fleeing a bad situation, trying to get to a safe situation. And there's no difference. But the difference is, this is 2016. This is not 1944. People have changed. Cultures have changed. Technology has changed. The internet is here. Social media is here. There's, we live in a hall of mirrors right now in media terms. And I, I think this is something that a lot of people are very slow to understanding the, the, the weight of that. Um, and also the danger of that. And I think it's now, some people are being able, are waking up to it right now. We've touched on a few of these points today, but, um, but but still, both the left and the right in Europe failed to acknowledge properly that instead of venting their anger at the governments that have caused the migrant crisis, they instead vent their anger at each other or at the refugees themselves. 
And it's quite clear how this has started. It's quite clear what policies. But it's it's as if the people are afraid. Like you said earlier, Andrew, you know, that even in the West, there'll be no color revolution. They're too, people are too neutered to stand up and take their government to task for the policies that have created this problem. They'd rather sit and fight amongst each other and to scapegoat uh, many of the refugees who themselves are basically just looking for an opportunity or to or for safety in some cases so it, it and, and again these are the same people half of them will cheer cheer on a color revolution in the ukraine or wherever as some sort of great sort of you know uh some sort of accomplishment of western culture and western values i find the i, I find it amazing you know the irony of that yeah that's exactly what's happening and it kind of goes back to what our president putin said about how, you know, the growth of xenophobia among the population and harsh attempts to protect their interests, you know, I'm quoting here, jobs and social benefits from rivals is the response seeing this behavioral model. Something else he said I didn't mention last time, right afterwards, people shocked by what they perceive as aggressive pressure on their traditions or way of life feel a genuine fear of losing their national identity. And that's what you have. And something else, uh, you know, there's so much to mention. I know it's what you talked about. Like, for example, the clash of civilization. Absolutely, totally. This is definitely engineered. And the reason being is right now we're in an unprecedented period of global history where Eurasia is integrating primarily with the engines and cores of Russia, China, and Iran, three civilizationally distinct actors here. And they're getting together. They're working in multilateral frameworks, and they're cooperating very pragmatically and very positively. But if the U.S. had its way, the U.S. would create such civilizational cleavages between them to where it would preclude any type of pragmatic cooperation. This is why we look at what the multipolar is doing today, those three countries primarily being the leaders, Russia, China, Iran. And they're having this dialogue of civilizations, not a clash. But the U.S., as we see right now, for example, with a manufactured and fake Sunni-Shia split, I mean, that has been completely just taken out of proportion by the United States and Saudi Arabia to turn it into a geopolitical tool, they're doing this because they hope to escalate it to higher levels. What's happening in Europe now also serves the, serves the role of creating a demonstration effect of kind of making it look like the way that it's being advertised. Wow, look at these Europeans, so racist. Look at these Muslims, so bad, aggressive. All these juvenile stereotypes that are being used to foster this clash of civilization. And like I spoke about earlier, about Russia's multiculturalism, it's a blending of many different distinct elements into a whole that is larger than the sum of all of its parts. I mean, this is the Russian civilization, the Eurasian civilization, Muslim, Christian, Tatar, Ukrainian, everything together in this. And that's why we need to fight against this class civilization because it's very artificial. Like, for example, you know, I like to, I like to mention, it's a cliche, but the U.S. You know, has the unofficial motto of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Well, actually, that's what Eurasia is doing. That's what they're trying to do right now, Russia, China, Iran, out of many, one. But the U.S. is flipping its unofficial motto around and turning e pluribus unum into e unum pluribus, out of one, many. It's this identity conflict in targeted areas, specifically geostrategic ones that are part of international multipolar connective infrastructure projects to turn what is turning into a unified mass 
into separate, scattered, disparate parts fighting against one another. In Eurasia, the U.S. just sits back and it just watches everything from halfway across the world. There's not going to be any Mideast refugees taking a boat across the Atlantic. All they have to worry about is shutting down the Central American corridor when and if they want. They have the capability to do so when need be. And the U.S.'s ultimate fallback plan is a type of transnational integration with Mexico, hence why the government actually facilitates Mexican illegal immigration into the U.S. to create its own type of blended society, but it's being done in a way that is completely going against what people want, taking advantage of Mexicans by making by hurting their society, this type of structural preconditioning, also using drug gangs, fast and furious, selling guns. El Chapo was caught with an American federal gun from this program. And it kind of, you look at it in the global perspective, it's very, very scary right now. Mm. So, so looking at, um, looking at Europe, back over to Europe, okay? Mm-hmm. So, so we got, we, we look at, let's start with Turkey because Turkey is the kind of, uh, pivot point there between Europe and, uh, the Middle East and Asia. It's, it's ideally in the absolutely perfect position and, and hence they're playing an absolutely a central role in the migrant crisis. Now, back in October uh, 2015, only a few months ago, uh, we we ran a story at 21st Century Wire. They th- we were looking at there was a deal which is being brokered amazingly by Turkey and the EU, where whereby Turkey was looking for something around. I think they did receive their first tranche of money, but you know around four billion euros to help deal with the refugee uh, problem in Turkey. And then also Turkey in exchange uh, need, wanted uh, EU to fast-track uh, Schengen visas for Turkish residents, which which would effectively make it like uh, a, a sort of unofficial EU member, really. Um, and if you if you think about the people in Turkey uh, and also the ease of getting a fake passport uh, in some countries, um, th- this would basically give uh, an open corridor, a terrorist corridor, if you will, straight into Europe. Uh, from Turkey, and this is what I argued at the time, and it, no one took any notice of it. Um, not only is the refugee business, uh, from the UN level to the NGO level, is a giant money spinner, by the way. For those of you who worked in that business, you know what I'm talking about, uh, or the World Food Program or anything like that, oil for food in Iraq, etc. Um, not only is it a big money spinner, but what, what, in your opinion, Andrew, what game is Turkey playing here? Because I see this as potentially racketeering on a geopolitical scale. With, if you think you know, about their involvement and their role in Syria, and then them looking on the other side to Europe, you know, which, which, <laughs> they have an old saying in the Middle East, I won't repeat it because it's, it, it, it could be construed as, as nasty, but, uh, which way are you facing? Let's just put it that way. Are you facing east <laughs> or west? <laughs> you know, that you actually hit the nail on the head. I mean, basically it's, what Erdogan is doing is he's, he's partaking in large scale human blackmail. I mean, like he's using human beings to blackmail the EU accelerated membership opportunities and different perks and personal payoffs that are going to enrich himself and his clique. And actually, I'd like to reference probably the world's premier expert on this. His name is Ghassan Kadi, G-A-G-H-A-S-S-A-N, Kadi, and he writes for thesaker.is. He has brilliantly 
just laid this out step by step in all of his articles. Highly recommend everybody reference them to see the source documents. I mean, this guy is just fantastic. And what he says is, look, Erdogan is playing a multi-layered game here. One of them is, yes, using refugees for blackmail. The other, though, is part of Erdogan's Islamist mentality, which, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, isn't Muslim. Islamist means someone that wants to impose Islam on people. And we look at Erdogan, and he's so close with the Muslim Brotherhood. He's their basic protector right now. Muslim Brotherhood was kicked out of Qatar at the end of 2014, and they went to Turkey. I mean, Erdogan uses the Muslim Brotherhood as a transnational type of regime change organization, okay? And here it's relevant to talk about what the U.S. and Turkey wanted with the so-called Arab Spring. That was really a theater-wide color revolution with the idea of using embedded Muslim Brotherhood cells in these targeted states to have coordinated regime changes to bring to power a transnational government in the region run by the same party. To put it in uh, historical terms, imagine, stereotypically speaking, how the Communist Party was seen during, during the Cold War. Kind of all, stereotypically speaking, don't get me wrong, embedded cells are going to come to power and implement a transnational based on, on party. That's what the Muslim Brotherhood's function was, okay? Now, sim- sim- similar to, to similar to uh, you know how you had a kind of a Baathist um, sort of uh, confederacy forming in, in the Middle East for a time, you know, short period of time, but something similar to that across borders, same party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, because what you're what you're referencing here are the Baath parties in Syria and Iraq, and at the very beginning, they were somewhat born from the same seed as it looked, and they used the same name, but they actually quickly diverged to be yeah. very, very different states. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, the Syrian Ba'ath Party eventually became totally opposed to the Iraqi Ba'ath Party because the Iraqis were selling out to the United States, particularly with Saddam Hussein and his collaboration with American intelligence organizations and the State Department and Defense Department in waging the war of aggression against Iran. So, I mean, but, but I, I see the point. I mean, yeah, that's kind of the general idea of what it was supposed to be. And they almost, I mean, got, I, they almost got it. In, I mean, if you look at Egypt... And then there was yeah. a, there was a huge pivot. I think it was June 2013. Uh, and they the, the whole thing turned on them at that point. But up until that point, it was looking, it was looking, and they they had a hand. The Egypt Muslim Brotherhood had a, a hand deep into Syria, by the way, and that was very important in getting that um, project destabilization project going. Was the with the work of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in in Syria and also in Libya too, because the the weapons transit went across Egyptian borders it was almost like then they were done with them at that point and then they started to sort of fold them in it's it seemed to me but it they, they nearly achieved that andrew yeah they actually almost did and it's important here to draw um attention to the role of huma abedin as then secretary of state hillary clinton's number one advisor referred by many as her unofficial daughter because she is an islamist i mean her family is linked with all those types of groups it's all documented, all readily available on the Internet. And he was actually very instrumental in kind of promoting this. And when we talk about the Muslim Brotherhood, I want to tell everyone that that's with rubbing shoulders with them, hobnobbing and using them. But in Syria, Russia, and even Saudi Arabia, the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist group, legally designated as a terrorist group. Mm-hmm. That's probably the only thing Russia and Syria have in common with Saudi Arabia is designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist group. Right. So when... Saudi Arabia designates someone as a terrorist group. Sometimes it's for political reasons, of course. I mean, they play a lot of games. But when they're, like, serious about it, I mean, what's that tell you when the terrorist hegemon itself 
labeled this as a terrorist group, okay? So to go back to Turkey a little bit more, also Erdogan has this policy of neo-Ottomanism. This is articulated by Ahmed Davutoglu, who was previously the foreign minister of Turkey, but is now the prime minister. And the idea was to restore Turkey's so-called, you know, imperial greatness, yada, yada, yada. Well, the idea was to use the Mideast and North Africa as the launching pads. That failed. And that failed particularly because the Syrian people, being historically secular and being at the crossroads of many different identities and having their own very unique and very, very proud civilization, stuck up for themselves and they fought back. And they've been fighting back. And thank God for that. And because they fought back, now Turkey is in its present predicament. Now, how does the migrant crisis come into play? Well, by unleashing the migrants into uh, the Balkans, we see that they're kind of following the exact same route that Turkey itself did was going towards the gates of Vienna when they were conquering, occupying, and pillaging, and completely raping the Balkans. I mean, you look at the history of Balkan occupation over Serbia, for example, and my God, is it brutal, okay? Anyone can read about that. If anyone knows any Serbs, just ask them. What was it like? What do you know? What can you tell us about the Ottoman occupation? They'll tell you. But it made Serbian identity very, very strong as a result. What yeah. I'm getting at here is neo-Ottomanism was redirected partially from the Mideast into the Balkans. And that's actually why Turkey is now trying to get into EU and everything else. It's a fallback plan for its neo-imperialist design. And, and so that's a really important bit of history. I mean, I don't normally go back uh, into historical context in, in too much minutia because uh, sometimes we just don't have the time to get. But what you just talked about, you know, the, the Balkan crisis, and this is another thing that's always referenced by, you know, all the great and the good and the and mainstream media and the political geniuses. Also, oh, the Balkan problem, they've always fought each other. Well, there's a specific set of reasons historically that have made the Balkan situation what it is. And one of them is exactly as you've just said. It was the Ottoman occupation. And that this is going right back to the uh, Austria-Hungarian, uh, uh, um, the Styrian, Styrian Empire, right? Um, in the, I don't know what the year was exactly. But they, they, they saw that, they saw the Balkans as a buffer zone. They saw it as a buffer zone. And so a lot of bad things happened in that region. But the Europeans saw that as the buffer zone and they, they, they managed, they managed that chaos for a very long time. And so this was the, so they were caught in the middle basically. And I think they were caught in the middle in World War II as well, uh, with, with the sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the Reich's march. Uh, into the Ukraine. Um, again, the Balkans were caught in the middle and people were played against each other and those scars run deep, those wounds run deep. And now still people throw salt on them through these various crises. I can say the Ukraine is definitely an example of that. Um, but th this is a really important to understand the historical context, though. Yeah, it definitely is. And actually the historical context sets the framework for what's happening today. So uh, go back to Neo-Ottomanism. Turkey has been building a lot of mosques and sending a lot of creatures. Saudi Arabia and Qatar have been into Bosnia, the occupied Serbian province of Kosovo, and to Albania. And it, it, it's a little bit weird about Albania because they're known to be so secular, but Turkey, because Turkey is taking Albania under its wing, kind of joint overseeing it together with the U.S. in a way, still playing a junior partner, though. And one of the conditions they're saying for this aid is, look, you need to open up these mosques and you need to actually become more pious, as they call it. Well, in reality, it's the Islamization of a secular society. All geopolitical sins aside, which there are so many when it comes to Albania and what they have done, especially lately, at the end of the day, 
this is a secular society that does not want to have Islamization forced down their throat, even though about 90% of the population are Muslim. They're very secular in this, in this context. But Turkey's idea of neo-Ottomanism utilizes the party of Muslim Brotherhood, this idea of Islamization, in trying to position Erdogan as a new sultan, as a new caliph. I mean, forget about al-Baghdadi. Al-Baghdadi, his, his prospects for being a quote-unquote caliph were always next to nothing. It's Erdogan because he has a state apparatus behind him, aided and abetted by the U.S., that's infiltrating into the Balkans right now. Yeah. That it's like that. And, you know, I was in, I was actually in Bosnia. I was in Sarajevo back in, uh, 2000 and, 2013 in the spring. Took a brief trip there with some friends and I can tell you from my own eyes. I posted some pictures on Facebook about that as well. And I even saw there were buildings that said paid for by Turkey, paid for by Qatar. Paid for by Saudi Arabia. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yep. Hold on a second. But we know what's coming with that. You know, and we know, we know what those countries are exporting. And it's something that nobody wants a part of. And here it is. Look at the map right there. Soft underbelly of Europe. Balkans are so important because of the Chinese and Russian projects, multipolar projects. But for the unipolar world, they want to keep the Balkans corral because it's the most direct highway between the Germans and the Turkish economies. They want to use it as a highway for that, but they don't want to build up the region. They want to keep the region divided into all these identity statelets that they wanted to create in, so that it can never actually position itself as the pivot. We talk about Turkey as a pivot. It definitely is very geostrategically important. But what also was very important as well was the former Yugoslavia before it was violently shredded. I mean, everyone, I recommend people go on on our YouTube when they watch something called The Weight of Change, okay? It's a documentary by a Serbian-Canadian filmmaker, and it's fantastic in how it shows how this, um, with these weapons of uh, distraction and soft power and influence are being were used and structural preconditioning were used to just split that society apart to what you have now. I mean, you have, you don't even have Yugoslavia anymore, and it's yeah. because of this. And, and it's a, you know, we, we'd be looking at a very different scenario right now had, had the breakup of Yugoslavia not happened. I think I'm going to underline that point to our listeners. You know, had that situation not happened, we would not potentially, we would not be seeing what we're seeing today. Uh, I think that's a, there's a good argument to be made there, possibly. Um, but, but more importantly, um, moving along the map, Andrew, we're going to take mm-hmm. a little road trip uh, from uh, with the Balkans to um, uh, Budapest. What is the significance of Hungary? Because here's how I see it, and I want to get your take on this. Um, immediately when I saw uh, at the height of the Ukrainian uh, sort of operation, if you will, the regime change operation in the Ukraine, that's exactly what it was, by the way, I, I, for anybody that wants to, you know, or debate that, it's pretty clear what it was. But so Victor, o- Victor Auburn, the leader of Hungary, uh, developing trade uh, relationships with Russia, signing solid deals, doing a lot of cooperation with Moscow, much to the dismay of uh, Brussels, much to the dismay of Washington. And then suddenly we start seeing a demonization campaign against uh, the Hungarian leader, predictably, and all of a sudden, he's at the butt of the migrant crisis. So is this all a coincidence, or is this engineered? 
No, it's definitely engineered, and it's engineered a little bit deeper than most people realize. I mean, you definitely addressed all the relevant points when you spoke about the timing and how it's not coincidental. And I wrote an article, yeah, with Victor Orban. I actually wrote a pretty in-depth analysis about him called Orban the Fox. That's also at orientareview.org. But in sum, what I said is, okay, he's definitely representing his national interests. I'm talking now in the framework of, which is foreign policy and domestic policy. Foreign policy working with Russia domestically by building the border wall to protect the country from, to prevent it from being a migrant highway. Because once you, something else I want to say too is in these Balkan countries and especially Hungary, the idea was that when these people are going through those countries, eventually the, you know, the path is going to stop and they're going to be stuck in some countries and they're going to be used as protesters, as aggressive provocateurs, so on and so forth. Orban saw that and he put a stop to it, hence why he built the fence and was vilified. But at the same time, while he's doing all these things that I support in that way, I see why he's doing it, it makes sense, he's also slyly working to bring the Republic of Macedonia and Serbia into NATO. Actually, he's a very strong advocate in that, and he's very, very closely tied with, with NATO. Now, he's not hosting one of the regional centers that are opened up opening up in Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, and the Baltic states. But he's so close with the bloc. I mean, he's a member, after all. So we, we can't discount that when we look at Orban in general, because for as much of a role as he is in taking the lead in defending his country against color revolutions and this migrant wave, these weapons of mass migration, he's also slightly trying to expand NATO at the same time. So I wrote about that in the article, Orban the Fox, but uh, just to go back more uh, in general about Orban, the U.S. still doesn't like him because when it comes to U.S. Uh, proxies, the U.S. likes to call them allies, but it's never on an equal foot. The way it comes is there can never be a government that's quote-unquote too loyal. The U.S. always demands more from its proxies. So they see that Orban is here. Yeah, he's doing this sly NATO promotion on the side, but they say, well, look, hold on, the problem is you're still working with Russia with nuclear energy. You're still, you know, involved in some other types of partnerships. Well, we're going to start unleashing some more color revolution unrest against you. About a year ago, there was some, uh, there was some protests and internet attacks. Granted, it was pretty controversial. I see why people were protest, but organizationally and thematically, they said all the hallmarks of a nascent color revolution. It wasn't carried out to fruition. Sometimes these things, there are, there are test cases. They shoot out a trial balloon. They see what's working, what's not working. They kind of keep the government on its toes. Right now, for example, there's protests in Budapest today, actually, over some type of change in the educational standards. Now, why is this happening? Well, the U.S., of course, is taking advantage of the domestic situation. All countries have their controversies. I mean, politics is politics no matter where you go order to apply more pressure on him and more pressure. Let's keep in mind with George Soros, also Hungarian, albeit his family was collaborating with the Nazi occupiers during World War II. George Soros said, oh, Europe needs to take at least one million migrants a year, and uh, Orban is horrible for shutting off the borders. And Orban basically said, hey, we're going to protect our country as you want. We're not doing this crazy neoliberal, postmodern, open border, no assimilation, no integration type of game. So now we see, you know, George Soros is there, and he's obviously involved. I mean, Soros Foundation has its hands in everything in the Balkans and yeah. up past the Balkans. Open Society, and, oh, the Open Society Institute and Foundation, yeah. And the Tides yeah, Foundation, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and you, you, that actually brings us to a good point here. When we're talking about these car revolution organizations and these uh, migrant facilitating networks, most of them are related in one way or another to the Soros Foundation, National Endowment <laughs> yeah. for Democracy. I mean, they're all run by the same guys. I mean, it's funny because there's, you know, in the alternative media, there's the cliche that, oh, all the media you watch conventionally is owned by like one out of six companies. Well, just about any type of rent a riot is run by one of six organizations, and they're all tied to the United States and its intelligence apparatus. So basically, they're all run by the same group. Just the left hand doesn't always coordinate with what the right hand is doing. And, and, you, and know, you know, you, we see. Sorry, um, hold that thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know about Optor, right? Uh, run out of Belgrade, yes. Canvas. So they were they were there training the Occupy Wall Street crowds early on in the Occupy Wall Street when it just sort of kicked off in New York City. Uh, Optor was there. I forgot the the chap's name, but he's Serbian, and he was there. And, yeah. And they have funding ties as well to those same uh, organizations: National Endowment for Democracy, Open Society Institute, and they also trained the Tunisian uh, Arab Spring leaders two years before offshore outside of Tunisia trained the student leaders uh, in lots of different techniques and things and then sent them back and voila as if by magic boom the Arab Spring happens so you're uh, there are a number of these organizations uh, in, in in the shadows there behind the movements if you will yeah there definitely are and uh, when you mentioned Occupy Wall Street this brings me back to what I mentioned earlier about Black Lives Matter being linked to the Soros Foundation. Like I said, I'm not saying they don't have some good points about police brutality and so on and so forth. But at the same time, this goes back to the U.S. being its own type of sociopolitical laboratory for these new asymmetrical weapons of fifth-generation warfare. And, you know, also in the same breath as George Soros, we should mention Gene Sharp. Oh, yeah. He is the real coalition architect with his so-called Albert Einstein Institute. And because of that, why you had this proliferation of color revolution technologies. I mean, you brought up Tunisia, the same thing was also happening in Ukraine. Just they were taking them into quote-unquote, you know, forest camps, like Boy Scout thing. They were teaching them how to shoot guns, create improvised explosives, and to have people to death. I mean, they were teaching them militant techniques under the cover of just being like a little summer camp or something like that. And Canada was also involved as well because the Ukrainian expat population there is very, very nationalistic, okay? So we need to look at that. But there is something a little bit, I don't want to say positive, but there's a double-edged sword to opening Pandora's box of chaos, Patrick. And it's that with uh, public dissemination and the easy, free availability of color revolution, you know, uh, manuscripts and field work and all that other stuff, field books, you have the possibility of real, actual, legitimate sources using some of these techniques in order to promote their counter-hegemony struggle. Perfect example. What's happening in Montenegro right now? On the surface, superficially, there are many color revolution tactics being used in some way. I mean, we, we see it all. The difference is, first of all, there's no external patron. There's no country outside financing and organizing anything like that. Entirely indigenous and endemic to Montenegro. But they're using the tool that the U.S. had publicly made available, and they're turning it against American policy. Something very similar is happening in Moldova right now. Looks like a color revolution on the surface, yes. You can just check off all the different characteristics. But inside of it, what differentiates it is no foreign support. Now, granted, the U.S. is trying to co-opt some elements of that, but in general, this started on its own using the publicly available and translated into over 26 different languages manuals that Gene Sharp makes available for free 
on his Albert Einstein Institute website. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Yes. Wow. So yeah, that's that that is yeah. So Gene Sharp is the father. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> you know, working busily and is behind his desk with all the books and papers piled up. You can't even see him. He's there working diligently, designing uh, things based on uh, rules for radicals or other ways to disrupt from the inside. This is the technology uh, of the fifth generation warfare that you described early on in the segment. So this is the basis of the hybrid warfare. I do uh, encourage people to go and find out who Gene Sharp is and uh, get d- download his materials for free and do read them, just as I tell people to read uh, Saul Linsky's Rules for Radicals. And by looking at some of these seminal pieces of work, whether you agree with them or not, you can then recognize the fingerprints of the techniques when you see them uh, expressed either on social media, uh, you can see this expressed through just basic trolling uh, on the Internet. And you can see this through hashtag campaigns and you can see this through mainstream media coverage of some of these events and how it's framed. Um, it becomes pretty obvious once you understand the tools of the trade, if you will. Uh, and I think I think there's a Andrew, I think there's a kind of a denial in the West um, by the media. Um, there's a denial to want to look under the surface of some of these events and some of these movements. Um, possibly it's because of political expediency by those in editorial positions. Uh, but a, a, a lot of it is just pure laziness and ignorance on the part of journalists who just don't want to go that deep because it, it, the same reason they don't, don't want to go that deep uh, in analyzing Syria or analyzing any of these jihadist groups because they know if they go that deep or they don't want to go and look at Gladio. Um, because they know if they go that deep, uh, this is going to open up a whole new can of worms for them. And then life, you know, can't go back to normal at that point if you're a journalist, if you're a good journalist anyway. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, uh, Gene Sharp and social media and all these tactics, they're definitely very relevant. And I'd like to also mention, uh, when you spoke about uh, journalists that don't want to do their jobs and dig deep, Part of that's also because of political correctness, that they know that if they do that, they're going to lose their jobs. But I'd like to say, political correctness is self-censorship in so-called democracy. If people are really free, then the greatest expression of their freedom of speech in a Russian democracy is to be as politically incorrect as possible and chant commonly held notions and perceptions. But when it comes to investigating color revolution destabilizations and the war on Syria, war on Serbia, all this stuff that's been going on, there's a fear, and it's a fear because they don't they they have an idea what they're going to find, and they want to find it, and because they also know that the American fingerprints are all over this. It shatters the myth. It shatters the ideological myth of democracy promotion, which is a universalism, a very aggressive, perhaps the most aggressive universalism, because it has been applied militantly all across the world. Fascism, Nazism, horrible, a scourge in humanity, but. It was the horrors were largely contained in a certain space in a short period of time, very, very intense during World War II. Now, it's coming back, but on a different scale, whereas what the U.S. had been doing, I mean, this is every continent. This is all over the place. These are assassinations, coups, economic warfare, bombing different countries, all these types of things. And, you know, it just destroys the whole ideology of democracy export, which is part of the inherent American identity. You know what I say, Patrick? And also, it also undermines the American dollar in many ways, too, <clears throat> if this stuff is exposed and moved away 
You know what I think? I actually had a revelation the other day, and I thought about it to myself. What makes someone in America, and this goes back to soft power and weapons of mass distraction, and I realize it. Anyone that uses the greenback, anyone that uses the dollar, is technically an American in many ways. Now, one can say, well, some countries need to use the dollar, of course. But I'm talking about an actual private system in many ways. People that are using the dollar in Brazil, to me, they're basically Americans no matter what they say because they're using that day-to-day. They're helping that system. Now, you have to work within the system to change it in some ways. Russia, China, Iran, they're using dollars. Well, they're moving away from it, but to an extent, they still trade in it. But it's just something to keep in mind, these ways that people don't even realize it, and they're tied into the way a system works. They're tied in so closely. They don't even realize it. Even those that might say, wow, you know, I'm against this imperialism, then they're, you know, going to McDonald's, they're just sending dollars overseas, and they're reading Gene Sharp. They fancy themselves their own activists. They put on their Occupy Wall Street hat, and they don't even realize George Soros is kind of patting him on the back. Absolutely, and, and, and I think that's an important point that people need to realize, that the number one product that America produces is not oil, is not guns, uh, it's not cocaine, uh, it's not uh, media products or anything like that, it's not Hollywood. The number one product that America produces worldwide is the greenback, is the U.S. dollar, and the success of that dollar depends on getting it into different and new markets. So if the dollar is into markets and saturated, this is good. If those markets close, this is bad because the dollars then flood back home and then they risk inflation, the system that the U.S. is running now, which is an inflation, printing money basically um, nonstop and just, you know, massive quantitative easing all the time. This is what the U.S. is doing. So it needs to stuff all these dollars. It needs to launder all these dollars in all sorts of places, in all sorts of overseas markets and crevices and, and hidden basements all over the world of economies and so forth. And if it can't do that, uh, the system, uh, it, it can put a lot of pressure on the U.S. back home. And that's a reality. And that's been, the, that's been that way for quite a long time now. Uh, so that's a really important point point that you made there but the other thing i want to comment on i want to get your take on we might round out with this topic we'll we'll go a couple of minutes over time but there's a lot of people there's a new i don't know if you've noticed it andrew but i've seen a wave of certain people and uh to increase the confusion on, 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 online and within social media there's there's a pe- there's a few people out there that are trying to equate uh russia aggression or they're creating this idea of russian aggression trying to compare it to uh, uh anglo-american or atlanticist um western uh, expansion and subterfuge globally and and they're trying to equate the two so they're saying you know if if russia stands up for its interests in its own sphere that's just as bad as the u.s um uh, you know flooding uh billions of dollars in arms and guns to jihadis in syria and iraq and and then bombing and occupying other countries around the world and having 1300 military installations worldwide they're trying to equate these somehow or to equate the expansion of the eu and the expansion of nato eastward trying to somehow equate that with with russia uh, uh, trying to basically act on its own national interest, what's left of them anyway. Um, that, but I see this in a way that trying to, it's a kind of a divide and rule strategy that's kind of, you know, pick your side basically. And, and, and it's come out of Syria. It's sprouted out of the Syrian conflict, uh, more than anything. 
Yeah, it definitely has. And actually, the thing is, is to go back to history, I mean, Russia has always been seen as a scapegoat ever since the 19th century, the British Empire. We can even see beforehand, too, the argument can be made when you look at the Vatican and its expansion eastward. But uh, just to get back more to the present day, Russia doesn't have any universalism that's exporting. There is no more communist international, whereas the U.S. has this democracy international, quote-unquote. Also, Russia and China and Iran are what I term R&D states, standing for resistant and defiant. They are resisting the U.S.'s unipolarity, and they are defying its global hegemony by pushing back. We see this through the anti-terrorist operation in Syria, even prior to that, we see that through the support it was providing the democratically elected and legitimate government of Bashar al-Assad, helping other countries to uh, counter solutions, predict them, expose them in advance. Because when you expose them in advance, it kind of really, really neutralizes them and sweeps the rug out from underneath them. And also, what Russia is taking the lead in alongside China and Iran, to an extent, is this de-dollarization. I mean, you really summed it up quite well, Patrick, when you explained how this is the United States' number one export, and that's why we have, you know, Russia wants to use the ruble. Its integration project is the Eurasian Economic Union. China wants to use the yuan or the renminbi. Their main project are these new silk roads all across the world, both mainland and maritime. The EU has the euro, but it's subservient to the United States. But if Russia and China were able to succeed in their Balkan infrastructure projects, they'd be able to help liberate Europe from part of the interplayer. Now, this is a lot easier said than done. It's the long-term grand strategy here. And they can bring, piece by piece, the EU into this actual Eurasian fold. So it comes back down to how that would be a huge asymmetrical blow to the United States. It would, it would self-destruct the economic system that the U.S. has built after World War II, and it went into overdrive after the old Cold War and that's actually what's at the cusp of everything. And just to go full circle, wrapping everything up to the migrant crisis, the immigrant crisis is the main way of putting Europe totally on its knees, dividing societies, keeping the main government in a near constant state of political tension that can be exploited at will for color revolutions and pressure from below, quote unquote, organized by the U.S. and also provoked by the U.S. against the governments that work with Russia and China. And this is a multi-generational plan right now because one million people go into a country, they're going to have kids, they're bringing their culture with them, they don't want to assimilate because it's Western multiculturalism. This is the long-term power play on all sides, Russia and China, to liberate the EU using these Balkan projects and their transnational connective multipolar infrastructure, Silk Roads, Eurasian Economic Union projects, U.S. using TTIP, using migrant crisis, using perpetual color revolution threats, and using NATO and turning NATO from an international instrument to a domestic instrument inside the occupied countries as a quote-unquote law enforcement body. That's going to be next, is using the overlap of most EU states with their NATO membership as the on-the-ground enforcers of the U.S.'s grand pushback against this counteroffensive that Russia and China are engineering against the U.S. to liberate Eurasia. And that's why the U.S. is unleashing all these elements of fifth-generation warfare right now with the migrant crisis occupying the headlines, but there's so much more. Yeah. Oh, I think we lost uh, Andrew there. 
I'm still here. I'm still here. Are you still there? Yeah. yeah so, I'm still here. Yeah. so, 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 is TTIP uh, the uh, tr- uh, transatlantic uh, part, uh, investment partnership? Um, it, could that be? Could the migrant crisis be a kind of a, uh, a Hegelian uh, sort of dialectic feed-in to call for TTIP? Um, can they use this to, to basically say, well, the answer is TTIP? Yes, that's actually what they're doing right now. Already reports are emerging that uh, many of the refugees, quote-unquote, in Germany are going to be offered low-paying positions of like one euro an hour just to keep them working and out of the streets. Okay, this is just so disrespectful to those individuals, no matter why they came. It's one, one euro an hour. Yes, those are the reports well, that are coming out. Why not just pay them nothing or just just pay their bills? I mean, what's the point? Exactly, exactly. But now we see that, okay, all these people are here. There's this pushback, as I had quoted President Putin earlier. It's expected through these behavioral models that there's going to be a reaction from the native local population. So what are you doing? You have some hysteria being drummed up by all sides. Some of it real, some of it taken out of context, some of it stepped under the rug. Well, eventually TTIP's going to come in and say, hey, look, you need jobs. These American businessmen got jobs, but, oh, you know, those darn EU bureaucrats are holding back TTIP. We can just solve the refugee crisis right now, give everyone jobs. Who cares? They'll be, you know, they'll be at their jobs and everything will be fine. That's the, that's the line they're going to be using to try to sell TTIP. It's only a matter of time before TTIP and the immigrant crisis are mixed and matched together to kind of further one and another. You know, this influx of cheap labor into the EU will be used to kind of propel TTIP if, God forbid, it's ever institutionalized and implemented as this engine for the elite profits. Oh, my God. That's a, hor- that's a horror scenario. Then that's what's happening, Patrick. That's that, what's happening before our eyes right now. That's a horror scenario, but I can see a lot of corporate bosses kind of uh, grimacing with a grin at the corner of their mouth at the prospect of having that sort of cheap labor in a European uh, market and probably with all the sort of, ta- well, basically TTIP and, and T, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, both of them are basically, it's a corporate override over, uh, national sovereignty full stop, basically, is what it is. Just basically gives them, uh, carte blanche, essentially, to write their own ticket, um, as, as in what, which they were. But that would be the perfect scenario, Andrew, is there's the cheap labor, right? Yep, that's exactly where it is. And when you look at it, too, think about this. We're talking about the domestic destabilizations that were catalyzed by the migrant influx, the reactions and everything that's going on on all sides. And, you know, when you have riots, you have destruction, you have fires. Imagine, to our American audience, imagine Baltimore times like 100 or Ferguson times 100. Mm-hmm. There's a potential for that all across Europe as the far-right fascist and hardcore militant communists are starting just to get, like I mentioned earlier, they're both, they're, they're both in the part of the circle. They come to meet, the two extremes meet, they become the same type of force, you have the Bezian conflict between citizens, refugees, and the state. Everything's coming to a head. And that destruction, I mean, you have Europe tearing itself apart. I mean, for these hardcore American capitalists, it's like, gosh, look, huh, you're destroying your infrastructure. People are scared. Jobs are just being destroyed. People are unemployed. Gosh, we can just swoop in there and we can make so much money. And we can just, they look at this as a prime opportunity for business and corporate it's corporate occupation, basically. I mean, yeah. we spoke about TPP as well. Yep. These are instruments. These are fifth-generation instruments of warfare that are being used to institutionalize the U.S.'s hegemony. It's not a coincidence that if you look at the Eurasian map, 
We have Western Eurasia, the EU, Eastern Eurasia, and Southeastern Eurasia. U.S. is trying to institutionalize its grit on both corners of the Eurasian landmass while it's still trying to fight to keep its influence in the Mideast, trying to bring India on board as well. That's a whole other topic for a whole other segment for sure of what they're trying to do there. And they're just trying to wrap that noose around Eurasia. And they got the rope. They're trying to lasso Russia, India, I mean, Russia, Iran, and China, and they're going to hang them from a tree. That's what they want to do. Yep, yep. And and so if you want any evidence to this, just listen to the Republican debate. Uh, not a word about TTIP, not a word about TT, uh, TPP, nothing. Uh, and the president we have in office right now in the U.S., he's uh, absolutely for it, pushing it like crazy. And so I laugh at all these so-called liberals who are supposed yeah. to be against against something like that. You know, all the people who read uh, Naomi Klein's uh, shock doctrine or whatever and all up and arms, but then they're still cheering for Obama as he uh, tries to uh, force ram home uh, the TTP and, and cheering on TTIP and so forth. So it's all a big fraud uh, on the on the high-end uh, political scale, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a number of these these outgrowths. I mean, essentially what you're saying, Andrew, I mean, to wrap it up, so, you know, you're talking about the left-right aren't two sides. This is one circle. And the establishment can use um, a high-profile events like these that we're talking about to, to kind of force consensus uh, between these uh, seemingly opposing groups so where they somehow meet at some point where the establishment wants them to meet and so to 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 agree on certain things uh to get some sort of outcome that which the establishment wants essentially this is kind of what you mean right yeah absolutely that's exactly what they're trying to do is they're creating the social preconditioning and using high profile dramatic pretext in order to engender that in order to actually make that happen and bring the extreme left and extreme right into a position where they're so easily manipulable. I'd like to cite something that Professor Michel Chasadovsky, he runs the global research site up in Canada, he said in one of his articles about a couple months ago, I never forgot this, he said an intelligence asset isn't necessarily someone on the payroll. It's just someone, whether they know it or not, that can be used by the intelligence organization or they can be steered in the direction they want them to be. And he cited, and I forget what the name of the article was, how... Most of the Afghan Mujahideen, or the al-Qaeda terrorist predecessors, they never met an American in their life, never heard any English spoken, yet they're fighting and waging jihad against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. All the while, they were on a larger extent being manipulated by certain embedded case officers, weapons facilitation, inside moles, all these other things. But they, if you would have told them you're fighting for the U.S., they would have said, that's the great Satan too, we hate them. So just like this. This far left and far right can be manipulated in a similar context. It's been done before. It's happened before. And they can be manipulated and they can be used to put them in the place where they can most maximally um, optimize what their envisioned role is. I mean, they see themselves in a role. U.S. sees themselves in a similar role. They try to bring them together. And they don't realize they're being used. They don't realize that they're a sense is being facilitated by the U.S. intelligence organizations and some of the on-the-ground situations that they've manufactured. But that's exactly what's happening here. And it would shock many leftists, many far-right Nazis. It would shock them. They, they, they would probably doubt anything I'm saying. But it doesn't make it any different. Because right now you mentioned Gladio. 
This is Gladio 2.0, Patrick. You're using migrants, well, terrorists that are masquerading as migrants, extreme militant left, and fascist right-wing Nazis to create Gladio 2.0. Just this time, they don't even really need the embedded on-the-payroll officers and destabilizers. These people are doing it on their own. They're already pre-programmed. They're just taking, they wind up the toy soldier, they put him on the battlefield, and they let him play. But unfortunately, this isn't the game. Real people are going to be dying. Real people are already dying. Real people are being attacked. They're losing their livelihoods. They're scared. Like we mentioned earlier, there's a type of schadenfreude among some to see regular citizens in pain over this. just because they live in a country whose government supported this stuff, and that's just wrong. But it goes to show you, the far left has become the far right and vice versa, and they're really no different than the Islamic terrorists that are infiltrating into Europe. They're all the same, basically. Yeah, and, and all the while, I, I, I really highly doubt that, you know, a, a large percentage of our uh, political class are completely clueless uh, to, to most of this, uh, don't understand it, don't want to understand it, and uh, are simply going along with prepackaged talking points the whole way, uh, living a complete life of uh, ignorance <laughs> in, in their... Yeah. In, in, in their, in their sort of ivory towers. And, and that's, that, this is a huge problem too. But, um, look, Andrew, um, we, we could go in, into depth. Uh, we've only really touched on a number of areas, but I think you've given a good overview of a lot of different sections of this topic that I think people can go back and listen and, uh, people can get some bearing. Uh, they can get, they can kind of triangulate some positions. Uh, from this conversation we have today, and that's what I wanted to do from this interview. And I think we've uh, gone a, a little ways to achieve that, but I'd love to get you on in the future uh, to talk more about this um, on another date as well, Andrew. So if you're open to that, I would love that. And I'm of sure, course, I'd love to. I'd be very honored, Patrick. Thank you. And I'm sure our listeners would like it too, because it's been a very enlightening conversation. But um, just give us a shout out where people can look for you and find your work, Andrew, and uh, any books that you've got out currently and where people can get them. Yeah, uh, everyone can access my work with Sputnik at SputnikNews.com. I write a column that's on the right-hand side. I also have two weekly radio programs, one of which is an analytical program that I co-anchor with a very famous Russian journalist. And my other work can mostly be uh, accessible at OrientalReview.org. That's also where you can download for free the PDF version of my book, Hybrid Wars. I also write occasionally for The Saker, available at thesaker.is, and I've been writing some work lately for a, a think tank called Katehan, K-A-T-E-H-O-N.com. They're pretty good, too. They're based out of Russia, but taken together, that's where you guys can access my work. I want to thank you guys really so much for listening to my interview. I'm so happy. I welcome you guys to uh, follow me on Facebook. I might not be able to add everyone as a friend, but please follow me. I mean, please join in the conversation. Jump on my page. Engage with me, you know, have a dialogue with my community. I mean, you guys really help, help me so much with your support and I'm thankful to you guys, the listeners and everyone that I know that has helped me get this far. Thank you all. Okay, Andrew Karibko, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, and you can, uh, there's a link to actually to Sputnik on our show page right now, one of his recent articles on the migrant crisis, you might want to click through and read that to get started, but you'll see his work there and at the other places he's mentioned. We'll also add some links uh, later on after the show to some of his stuff, but definitely a, a person you want to be following absolutely on Facebook, uh, you want to be following Andrew there too. But uh, thank you so much for those of you who stick around uh, over the hour. 
Uh, we've gone a little bit over time, but you know, this is one of those rare subjects where I think uh, you know we do need to uh, break the time rules a little bit because uh, this is really important stuff. And I think the more information, the more insight you have on this topic, the better equipped you'll be to interpret it when you see it playing out in the media and on your streets as well, if you're living in Europe especially. But uh, thank you so much to our listeners, 21st Century Wire, Alternate Current Radio, uh, and also our gang in the chat room. And also, if you want to contribute and help us, get us on the road uh, to bring the show uh, on the road to the Middle East in the spring. Uh, donate. Click here. There's an icon of a backpack and a camera. Support 21 Wire. It's on our show page. Uh, we still need your help to get that last mile finished. But hopefully we'll be there by this time next week with any luck. But uh, thank you so much. This is Patrick Henningsen, 21st Century Wire and the Sunday Wire. We're signing out. Take care.